The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Hello there. Is this mic on? Yeah. Ryan, I'll send you your check for that nice introduction a little later. Uh, Ryan told you I'm a lawyer. Don't hold that against me, please. I want you to know I'm completely aware of the reputation we lawyers have. It's not a very good one. I want you to know that I've heard all of the lawyer jokes. I've read them all on the Internet. They go viral very quickly. Lawyers are considered a virus, you know, because there's so many of them. In fact, I want you to know that I know my place in society, and, and so that's, I just want to preempt you because you're going to say, ah, that's a lawyer up there speaking, why should we trust him? <laughs> but, you know, one of the cruelest lawyer jokes, let me just tell it to you, just to let you know, that, prove to you that I know these things. Um, do you know why they use... Lawyers instead of white mice in laboratory experiments now? Three, three reasons. Number one, there are more lawyers than there are white mice. <laughs> Number two, you don't get quite as attached to lawyers as you do the white mice. <laughs> Number three, there are some things that white mice simply will not do. That's cruel, isn't it? It's just really, really cruel. How many of you want to be lawyers? Ah, thank you, thank you. God bless you. (laughs) Wow, this is like a revival seeing those hands go up, I'll tell you. Anyway, so, before I tell you how I became a lawyer, how that process came about, I want to first talk about you a little bit, what I know about you. Sid and I live just a half block north, this direction. Uh, we probably had a shorter walk to this tonight than most of you, even though you live in this district. Now, I have a feeling that you're at a time in your life, after all of these years of getting to know students and spending time with students, I have a feeling that you're likely wondering, what does God have for me next? I have a feeling that you're faced with decisions and you've got all sorts of choices ahead of you and you're not quite sure how to make your choices. In fact, if anything, I have a feeling that some of you are kind of tied up in knots over the choices and keeping your options open. Is that right? Any of you relate to that? Yeah, okay. You're wondering, how do I hear God's voice in this? Does God speak to me? Is the voice that I'm hearing really God's voice, or is it something else? Well, I've got good news for you. If you ask these questions, talk to Ryan Church later on. He's got all the answers. Ryan, where are you? (laughs) No, no, I'm, I'm kidding you, but he has a lot of the answers. He just doesn't have all of them. Now, if you're asking all these questions, you're not alone. 
There's not a person in this room who hasn't asked those questions before. And the person you're sitting next to is probably asking exactly the same questions. How do I figure out what God's will is for my life? How do I hear the voice of God? Does he speak to me? Well, you know, in Scripture we know God speaks to people in many ways. In our life experience, we know that God speaks to people in many ways. In Scripture we find that God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. He spoke to Paul as a voice out of the heavens from a dazzling white light. In our, when you read biographies of great women and men of the faith, you find out that God speaks to them through Scripture. As they read the Scripture, they hear the voice of God speaking to them. You, you find out that people, uh, people hear from God through dreams. God speaks to people through dreams, through visions, through nature. You go hiking up in the Alpine lakes, and sometimes you can commune with God. You can, you can hear the voice of God through even reading a book or watching a movie. I just want to highlight for you one way that I have heard the voice of God in my life. One way. It's just one of many ways. These are, I want to use three turning points in my life, three decisions in my life where I felt distinctly that God spoke to me. These were absolutely critical decisions, and it was surprising how he did it. He spoke to me. It won't be a surprise in this sense. He spoke to me through other people. The surprise is what other people? Let me tell you first, people ask me, Skip, how did you come to decide to be a lawyer? They assume that this is what I had in mind from the time I was in college. No. When I was in college, when I was your age, I was a poli-sci major. Poli-sci majors, raise your hand. Ah, comfort, comfort. Yeah, great. You're good people out there. There are not very many of you. You're totally outnumbered by the business majors, I know. I don't want to see you business majors raising your hand, just the poli-sci majors. Okay, I was a poli-sci major. I was set on a career in academics. I wanted to go on and get a Ph.D. and eventually teach at the college level. That's, that's what I really I had my mind set out to do when I graduated from SPU. Ah, SPU, yeah. When I graduated from SPU, I headed off to graduate school. I was 20 years old. I was an early graduate student, an early college student. I had a full fellowship. Now, any of you going to graduate school next year? Do you know what a full fellowship means? That is really great. Isn't that great? Yeah. They even gave me living expenses. They paid everything, they, and they gave me some ex expense money, too. So I was on a full ride to George Washington University back in D.C. You saw a lot of the students in front of the White House. Those are probably GWU students, because the, the, the school is only about three blocks away from the White House on TV this week. But... <clears throat> I had it all set out. I was going to go to GW, get a Ph.D. eventually, and teach. Now, when I got there as an arrogant 20-year-old graduate student, 
I soon found out something I didn't realize before that. I realized in the elite graduate school across this country, something had happened to my field of political science I had no idea of, and I was discovering it. You see, what happened in the 60s was a lot of social scientists and political scientists, the social scientists, a lot of social scientists wanted to become natural scientists. They were envious of the natural sciences because natural scientists could measure, analyze, and predict. Political scientists wanted to do that. They wanted to measure, analyze, and predict. So the whole field of political science got into quantitative analysis, statistical analysis, quantitative methods, math. Did I go to graduate school to study math? No. I was really upset. I was doing fine in history. I had a class on the Communist Party of China. Wow. Taught by a Defense Department guy. I had a class on international crises taught by a State Department lawyer. Wow. I love that stuff. But I had to take math. I was really upset. And it wasn't too long into my grad school career. One night, about a month into it, I'm starting to brood about this stuff. I'm starting to get depressed. And so I have coffee one night with a good friend. He was on exactly the same program I was. He had exactly the same fellowship. We had the same classes. His name was Norman Brown. He came from Spokane. And so Norman comes to meet me for coffee. <clears throat> close to our, at this coffee shop, close to our school, close to GWU. He comes late. I've been waiting for him for about 15 minutes. He comes late, and he's got under his arms two huge stacks of books. And I had never seen these books before. I knew he and I were taking the same classes. Why does he have these books I've never seen before? They look strange. They're all red or they're all black. These are strange-looking books. I asked him, what are your books, Norman? He said, those are my law books. And law books, you're not taking law. We don't have law in our curriculum here at GW. And he says, well, no, these are my law books from Georgetown. I'm also signed up in law school in Georgetown. Well, I didn't know that about Norman. He's a very bright guy from Spokane. Maybe all of the people from Spokane are that bright. Is that right? <laughs> but he was simultaneously taking a master's degree program at George Washington and a law school program at Georgetown University. Bright guy. Anyway, I started leafing through his strange-looking books. And I was thinking, wow, I had no idea. This is what the law is about. These books are case books. And they have Supreme Court cases or appellate court cases from all around the country or from the United States Supreme Court. And they, what they did was they talked about a real-life situation. Facts, and then they applied logic and reason and public policy and statutory policy to these real-life situations where you had a dispute between people, companies, or the governments, state government versus private individuals. I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. I had no idea. Law school had never entered into my mind until that point that night in my first year of graduate school. That night, I made the decision to switch. It was still early enough. GW started 
at the end of August, early September. So it was early enough that I was able to take the LSATs and then ended up coming back to the University of Washington for law school. Um, Sid and I, my wife Sid is back there. She and I were seriously dating. We're getting very serious about each other. In fact, I proposed to her over New Year's, I mean over the Christmas break that year after I came back from D.C., and she accepted. Um, I'm, I'm glad for that, and I hope you're glad for that, too. Uh, but when I told her that I'm going to go to law school, she was shocked. She said, I didn't know I was going to marry a lawyer. I thought I was going to marry a college professor. Uh, you see how our lives completely changed through Norman Brown of Spokane, my buddy. He didn't have to say a thing, but God used him. Isn't that interesting? God used Norman Brown to steer me into the law. And now I've been a lawyer. This is my 41st year. I love my career. I love being a lawyer. I love what I can do being a lawyer. I love helping people. So any of you trying to find a profession, come talk to me, please. But that's just, <clears throat> that's the first example I want, you, I want to tell you about. Second example is a few years later. I'm about 36 years old by now. I'm a, still a fairly young lawyer, trying to get myself established in the profession, trying to build up a law firm, had a dream of building up a first-class law firm of believers in downtown Seattle. And that's what I was working towards. I had young children. Sid and I had young children. We lived in Mercer Island. I came home. Whoa, Mercer Island. All right. <laughs> Mercer Island Covenant Church? No, no. Okay, well, <clears throat> I come home really, really tired one night, Friday night. I've been working very hard. Lawyers work very hard. And they use their brains, you know, and you just get brain dead by the time Friday night comes around. I get home, and Sid says, hurry up and eat. We have to go to church. I said, no, no, tell me it ain't so. <laughs> go to church on Friday night? She said, yeah, yeah, there's a mission conference starting tonight. And we're members. We're supposed to go to things like this. This is at the Mercer Island Covenant Church. No. Anyway, I go. I'm smart, okay? I go. I say, yes, dear. I go reluctantly to this missions conference. I just don't want to be there. I so much want to just be home. Friday night, relax, watch some TV, listen to some music, go to sleep. No. No. Missions conference, okay? Well, at this missions conference that night, I heard a man speak by the name of Juan Carlos Ortiz. He's from Argentina. And boy, could he preach. He could really preach. And he preached from the kingdom parables. You know how in the Gospels Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is as. And then he goes on to a series of examples. The man who bought the field, a pearl of great price. Uh, he just went on. He just, he's a spellbinding speaker. Friday, he just wowed me. I was actually able to stay awake. 
on a Friday night, dead tired, brain dead. But he revived my brain that night because he spoke to me the truth of God. So that Saturday night, Saturday afternoon actually, I went back voluntarily. I said, hey, sweetheart, let's go to the missions conference. Because it's, you know, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, right? Four services. Can you imagine that? So second service, Saturday, I say, let's go. We go. In the middle of his message on preaching on the pearl of great price, Juan Carlos Ortiz, bless his heart, steps away from the podium, and he says, in his Spanish-Argentinian accent, you know, this afternoon I read the newspaper, newspaper, it, uh, it says the president, and then he goes, I'm not going to use his accent anymore because I'm terrible at it. <laughs> he says, the president says he's going to send how much, 30 million? No, and you know, I have a tape, I have a tape of this message. There's a voice in the background that says, 300 million. Oh, 300 million. That voice is my voice. He says the U.S. government is going to send 300 million dollars to the Caribbean countries, Central America, to buy weapons to fight the Marxist guerrillas in those countries. He said, that is such a shame. It's such a waste of money. With that money, you could buy up all the land in Central America, give it to the poor, and you'd get rid of the Marxists. And then he said something else. He said, I have it as a word from God. I have it as a word from God that this is what we should be doing. We, the people of God, should be doing. Can't we buy the land in Central America? Don't we have $300 million? He says, I work for the Crystal Cathedral in Los Angeles. Crystal Cathedral, anyone? Los Angeles? No. He says, that's worth $30 million. Ten Crystal Cathedrals. We could buy up all the land in Central America. He says, oh, I'd better get back to preaching. So he gets back behind the podium. And he goes on with a pearl of great price. You see, he took this huge detour, and I, in my law practice at the time, am doing large land syndications for investors. And I think to myself, why can't we? Don't we, as a body of Christ, have the resources to buy up land to help the poor? Why do we wait for governments to do it? Land reform done by governments was a failure in Latin America. The governments were too corrupt. They couldn't pull it off. It became worse. Why can't we do it privately? That night or that afternoon, listening to Juan Carlos Ortiz, all of a sudden my mind was stuck right there. He went on. I think he preached a great sermon on the pearl of the great price, but I was stuck on his little throwaway aside. I was so excited, I got together with him Sunday night. He was staying at a friend's house. I was so anxious to talk to him because my mind had been going a mile a minute, and I had written out a whole concept of land reform, private land reform, raising money privately to buy land for the poor. I talked to Juan Carlos. He's in his pajamas. Back in those days, people still wore pajamas. He's in a bathrobe. You know what a bathrobe is? Yeah, I think you know what a bathrobe is. Yeah. <clears throat> and his eyes are glazed. 
And he is so tired. He's more tired than I was on Friday night. He is just spent. He's almost dead. Okay, and I'm excited, and I'm trying to tell him, Juan Carlos, you know this idea you gave me? You know, I'm just thinking, uh, now I think, he was praying all the time, Lord, please remove this man from my presence. <laughs> he said, finally, he said, Skip, if this is what you think God is calling you to, please do it. I'm a preacher. This is not something I, I am called to do. In fact, he said, I don't even remember that I said that. Are you sure I said that? Now, 29 years later, Agros, Agros International, www.agros.org. I know some of you are on your smartphones. If you want to get on the net, check out www.agros.org. 29 years later, we're in five countries, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua. We have 42 villages. Thousands of families now own their own land. The poorest of the poor who couldn't possibly have dreamt of owning their own farmland now do. Their dreams have come true. The United Nations and the World Bank have given us awards because they feel we have a model of fighting poverty that really, really works. So, God spoke to me through Juan Carlos Ortiz that night. A throwaway line he couldn't remember himself. Now, bonus question for the guys here. Bonus question, okay? Someday when you're married and you get home really tired on a Friday night and your wife says to you, Honey, let's go to the Fishings Conference at church. What do you say? Yes. A little louder. Yes. Yes, dear. Okay. Yes, honey. Okay. Good, good. Okay. Last example of how God has spoken to me at a critical point, life-changing point. Why did we move to the U District from Mercer Island 18 years ago? Is it Nathan, your brother, had the car stolen? Yeah. <laughs> um, Having your car stolen is a badge of honor in the U District, living in the U District. Mercer Island was so peaceful. We had a front door that we had we had a front door that didn't lock. You just put anything in it. You put you don't have to have a key. Put your pen in it and you turn it and it, it opens. You didn't worry about it. You left the windows open, moved to the U District. <laughs> we bought a new car once, a new minivan when we had kids. Next day, the car is stolen out of our driveway. Why would we do something like that? Well, let me tell you why. We had lived on Mercer Island 23 years, 
getting very restless. Both of us were getting restless. I was especially restless. I think in retrospect, we've talked about it, both of us have the kinds of minds where we like to ask questions. We're not satisfied with just having answers. We like to probe even deeper. And we just can't, we can't, we cannot think that we have all the answers because we don't. So we're always asking questions. And living in the suburbs, you don't always get among people. You don't always get among people who ask questions. So 18, 19 years ago, I had a chance to speak to the student body at Seattle Pacific, SPU. SPU? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and it was a tremendous experience. Afterwards, people just kind of surrounded me two or three deep, and went on. we went on for another 30, 40 minutes just going back and forth, people asking me questions. And after, afterwards, Sid and I were driving home, going over I-90, going back to Mercer Island, and I was telling her, what a tremendously exciting experience that was because I had discovered a whole population of people still asking questions. <laughs> people like you still asking questions. While we're on I-90 crossing the Mercer Island floating bridge, she says, well, why don't we move to where the students are? That's why we moved. Eighteen years ago, we moved here into the university district, a house just a half block north on 16th Avenue Northeast. When we come to UPC, we just walk down the alley and brought two of our three children who, one was in college, so two were younger, and began life planted here in the middle of a neighborhood that had no families and found out Early on, it's rather lonely being the only family here. And we started to pray. Maybe the Lord would bring us other families someday so that we have some kind of community here. <clears throat> the house next door, immediately to our south, uh, was a boarding house. And there were drugs being dealt out of it. Cars driving up the alley all times of night stopping, idling, people running up to the house, knocking on the door in the basement, and buying drugs. Police cars coming, every so often arresting people out of the house. So the whole way of life was different here in the U District. And we were lonely, and we were praying, and we prayed for community. Well, it started to happen about three years later. We started to have some friends think about coming to move into the U District. And then in 1997, 1993, January, we moved. 1997, a group of friends asked if we could buy a house together. And that ended up being what is now known as a North House, part of the Vision 16 houses. All right, North House. The next year, 1998, we had first year in North House, we had 12 guys in it. It went so well that we had a long waiting list for the house. Someone's, and then the women came to us. Women came and said, is this stuff only for guys? Have you ever thought of doing a house for girls? Uh, so we looked at a house. Someone said there's a house available on the corner of 17th and 50th. 
we go to see this house, and we're just blown away by how large it is. It's got 24 bedrooms. We didn't want to do it. I mean, I didn't want to do it. Most of my, my two other friends didn't want to do it. One of the guys, Jack McMillan, who was co-CEO of Nordstrom at the time, I don't think money was an object to Jack, coming from the, <clears throat> the Nordstrom chain. Uh, he, but he had had a wonderful fraternity experience when he was a UW student. We bought that house. That's the Av House now. Av House? All right, all right. Anyway, now, 18 years later, North House, Av House, South House, the Soho, the Trio, we've got 150 students living in houses in this community. We have 16, 17 families with young children, many with young children. A wonderful community has developed in this area, all coming from my wife, my dear wife, telling us or telling me, speaking God's word to me, let's move. Bonus question for guys. <laughs> Someday you're married, you're driving along some highway, your wife says, honey, let's move. Answer? Did, did, girls, did you hear that? Okay, once again. Once again, what is All right, all right. Good, good. You get the bonus points, yeah. So, three turning points. Do you see what major turning points these were in my life? Three decisions, three life-changing things. And three, I can now tell you, three dreams come true. My law firm, Agros, the university district, the whole Vision 16 community. Three dreams come true. Was the hand of God in those decisions? Absolutely, without doubt. No question about it. Norm Brown in a coffee shop in Washington, D.C. Juan Carlos Ortiz, an Argentinian preacher, said, my dear wife from Sunnyside, Washington. So how does that help you and your decision-making? How does that help you? You know, um, you guys, are you old enough to have seen the Indiana Jones movies? Yeah. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You remember the scene where he's crossed over into the cave where the crusader is, the guardian of the Holy Grail? Okay, what does the guy say to him when, and the Nazi guy? You know, when there are all these chalices and cups laid out there, and they're supposed to pick out which one is a holy grail. What does a guy say to Indiana Jones? Choose wisely. Choose wisely. For while the true grail will bring you life, the false grail will take it from you. So the Nazi guy chooses. What does he do? He goes, he finds the glittering gold chalice. Ah, the holy grail. He drinks from it. What happens to him? He, he disintegrates. He becomes this. He ages 2,000 years and 20 seconds. He disintegrates. He flies against the wall. He totally pulverizes. Right? What does the guy say? He chose poorly. Of course, Indiana, 
then starts to apply his academic mind to it. He starts thinking of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He starts thinking of Jesus. Poor. Carpenter's son. Simple. And he chooses the one made of clay. And he chooses correctly, and the old knight says to him, you chose wisely. Yes, you chose wisely. So let me give you some assurance here tonight. There are not very many decisions in life that will cause you to age 2,000 years in 20 seconds and pulverize. God doesn't work that way. Okay? Don't worry about it. God doesn't work that way. But, you know, you may agonize over decisions as if that were the case. But let me assure you, too, and the Apostle Paul assures you throughout the New Testament, and there's so many biblical examples, that God is for you in your decision-making. You have a God who really cares. You have a God who, when you ask for help, he will help. Now, here's another thing. Keep in mind, the truth of God being with you and directing you is never apparent at the very moment you're suffering through a crisis, when you have a loved one who's suffering or is seriously ill, something really bad happens in your life, and you ask for God to be with you, and he doesn't seem to be there. Where is he? Where is his hand? Where is his voice? How come he's silent right now? Where is he and why is he silent right now? It will only come to you years later as you look back on that, that God indeed was there. He was with you. He was for you. He was helping you. He was holding you up. But at the moment, you might not be able to tell that. So... Here's the life lesson, then, that I want to pass on to you. Other than committing crimes or doing things that harm other people, there are no wrong choices when you're following Jesus. There are no wrong choices. There are bad choices. There are choices that lead to addictive behavior. There are choices that get us in trouble with the law. There are choices that destroy relationships. But if you're in a quandary right now over which path to choose, whether you're going to go to graduate school or take some time off, whether you're going to go into the corporate world or go into the nonprofit world, whether you should go into this relationship or not go into this relationship, if you're at a point where you can hardly you, you just cannot figure out which way to go. Let me assure you, you cannot make a wrong decision. So, I heard, I had people in my life who spoke God's truth to me. You will have people. You have people right now who probably can speak God's truth to you. Listen carefully. But then you have to make the decision. The decision is all yours. Again, let me emphasize the life lesson I have learned. You cannot make a wrong choice. Do you think my decision to go to graduate school was a wrong choice? Even though 
I arrive at graduate school and I'm miserable the first month? No. God chose to allow this arrogant 20-year-old young man who thought he had life all figured out to go ahead and do what he chose to do. But in the process, he showed me his way, which involved going into the law instead. And it took going to graduate school and finding out that that was not the place for me that I finally found out about law school. Would never have known about law school if it hadn't been for that. So that's about all I have for you. Um, I'm not promising that you'll feel good about making the choices that you do make because you'll still wonder, did I make the right choice? I just want you to remember, choose wisely and know that you have a God who is for you and it will not be a, a wrong choice. Because whatever you choose, he can make good out of it. He can bring good out of it. Does that make sense? And, you know, I was hearing the song earlier. God, let us be a generation that seeks your face. Wow. If you indeed are a generation that seeks his face, if you individually seek his face in your life, you cannot make a wrong choice. Do it. Decide on it. Don't be paralyzed. Just go ahead and do it. Okay? Thank you.